third week of a study this morning. We've been working through this series called A Healthy Church in Dark Days. It's a study through the letter of 1 Peter, and, and we are looking and measuring ourselves in light of markers of health that we find in this letter. Not because I think we're ultimately an unhealthy church, but as a preventive measure, as a way that we can kind of just stay on track and strive for a continued health. And in doing that, last week we started part one of a sermon. Now, I'll just be upfront and honest. Every homiletics lesson I've ever had, every, every seminary professor that, that's ever talked to me about writing a sermon has said, what I'm about to do is dumb. You should never continue a sermon from one week to the next in a direct fashion such that you really rely on what you taught last week to teach this week. And I don't want to do that, but I don't have any choice because of the way the text, you wouldn't have sat with me for two and a half hours last week. So there's no way that we could have gotten all the way through the text without splitting it in two. So bear with me. We will do some groundwork that kind of, I think, will help build it out and help you see the doctrines that we've begun to establish. And really, we've been establishing these doctrines for three weeks. We've been working with a couple of premises, and I, I want to just start and, and get these premises back in our head before we look at the Scripture. Now, as I'm going over these, if you want to go ahead and turn to First Peter, you're welcome to do that. Uh, it, it'd be important. I would encourage you today especially to make sure that you're looking in the Bible so that you can see, as I make reference to the different verses, that you can see what, what's there. The, the verses will be on the screen. I just don't know that it works as easily uh, for, for our PowerPoint people to keep up with me as I'm kind of just pushing through. Uh, but I would encourage you to, to have one handy. First Peter is where we're going to be. Now, those first, those two premises. The first is, is that a healthy church is not the result of programs, marketing schemes, or public approval ratings, but is the result of, wor- the, result of the work of God among His chosen people who are living in obedient response to Him. Okay, I'm just start in the middle. It is the result of the work of God among His chosen people who are living in obedient response to Him. A healthy church starts with the work of God. Unfortunately, that's not how we often approach it. As we talk about church health, we often look at all the trappings. Just to give you an illustration of this, I I have a number of conversations with parents. We are a church with children, right? I mean, if, if you see what's going on at the house right now, You'd be, you're like thankful that they're over at the house, right? Because it's probably a madhouse over there. I'm, just, I'm guessing. I'm typically here. So, but, but, but we have, on an average week, in a church of a, that's, that runs somewhere between 100 and, uh, we've been averaging 100 to 120 for several months, on a Sunday morning across two services, we've been averaging anywhere from 35 to 40 kids. That's a bunch of kids, right? That's a lot of kids, and so parents come, and they're always excited to see kids here, and they come, and they're like, well, what are you going to do for my children? And I'm, okay, well, let's, let's have that talk. Let's begin this conversation. Because in this region, what you do for your families, what you do for children is a vital piece of ministry. It's important, and don't, don't hear me say anything, but it's important. I love your children. I, we're a church with, with kids. We're a family with kids, right? I want your children to learn. I want them to to grow up loving Jesus. I pray for your children regularly. And I think it's a great thing. But as we press into that conversation, it inevitably happens that we come to a place where people begin to ask this question. Well, what's your program look like? They always want to know what kind of dancing is going on or what kind of lights are flashing or what kind of dramatic presentation is being made. Don't, don't use a flannel graph, Right? Most of you may not even know what a flannel graph is. Maybe you've never seen one. I, I'm old enough to know. But don't be pulling out a flannel graph today, right? 
It's the way it's their expectation. You can't have a good kids program if you're using flannel graph. See, one time in particular, I was having this conversation, and this mother was like, I just want the best for my kids. I want the best for your kids too. But her measure of best was how much fun and how hard they played because there was a slide and a ball pit. Is that really the best we have to offer? Now, don't get me wrong. A slide in a ball pit is not the mark of an unhealthy church, but it's also not the mark of a healthy church. What she should be asking is, what are you teaching my kids? What are they learning while they're with you? I have dreams of having a slide in ball pit for all the kids. I'm not going to prioritize that. I'd rather prioritize the spreading of the gospel. But I don't need a ball pit and a slide to make sure your kids are getting the best. They are hearing about the love of Jesus and they are not giving, being given a moral law to live by. You see, it's the trappings that we have around us, this building, the location, the property, the programs, the ministries that we strive for. If they are not founded in the work of God on behalf of His people, you have no hope of ever being a healthy church. In fact, that leads to the second premise, and we really started building it out last week. It is that if a local church is going to be healthy, its members must be healthy. And if members of the church are going to be healthy, we must be built on a solid foundation. That foundation is not buildings, it's not number of services, it's not plans, and, and, it, and, and it's got nothing to do with whether your printers work when you're trying to sign kids in in the morning. If you sign kids in, you know we didn't have our printers this morning. It doesn't, that, that is not the mark of health. What are you standing on? And to rob from Jesus, the trappings that we have, the, the things that we say mark our health so often are simply shifting Sand. We must be standing on the rock of the gospel. His name is Jesus. And that's really what we've been building out these last two weeks. You see, I long for a healthy church that's not marked in its health by the trappings, but by individual members who stand on the gospel. And so I I don't want you to mishear me. I'm, I'm not saying we've got it together. Right? We, Christians, don't have it together. In fact, most of us are a wreck. We're just willing to admit that we're a wreck and that we need Jesus. Our lives are messy. <clears throat> we don't do the things we should do. We don't live the ways we should live. And we often prioritize the things we shouldn't prioritize. If we are going to be healthy Christians, if we are going to be a healthy church, if we are going to maintain the health that the Father has already begun in this church, then we are going to have to stand on this rock of gospel doctrine. Well, last week I tried to illustrate how important that is, uh, how important a foundation is. I brought you a couple of pictures. and I, The first one I showed you is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I don't need to show you that to you again. You probably have all seen a picture of it at some point in your life. It's a tower that leans. 
But I brought you to say it's probably that's probably the most popular foundation failure in the world. Everybody knows about the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but not everybody knows about this building in China that fell over, that literally fell over. And I brought a picture of it to you because it's shocking to see a building laying on its side. Buildings are not meant to lay on their side. It even looks weird. Go look, Google it. Look it up. It looks weird. Get close to it. It's like, that is strange. The building next to it is standing straight up, and this one's like, on the ground, something's wrong. And in inspecting it, they found what was wrong. The contractors who built the property, to save money, they decided that they were going to build concrete spires to support the building to, that, that were hollow. We use less concrete. <laughs> so we'll not fill them up. We'll make them hollow. Maybe, maybe that's common practice. I, I don't know. It seems strange to me. But then they also notice that they aren't. There, there, there's no rebar. Concrete needs rebar. It's pretty strong by itself, but it really needs rebar to make it really strong. And as important as important as a foundation is to a building. You see what happened? Let me just so that for those of you who aren't here, the, these contractors they build the building and then they decide to dig out the ground around it so that they can have an underground garage with the building. So they got a weak foundation and then they decide to screw it up even further and just go ahead and start disturbing the ground the foundation sits on, and it begins to rain. And the building begins to lean because the ground starts to soften, and pretty soon it can't support the weight and those concrete spires break right into it, it falls flat over on its side. Devastation. I'm suggesting, I'm just guessing, you can talk to Billy about this more later, he's an architect, he can tell you, I think a foundation is important to a building. And I think a foundation is important to a Christian life. And this, as, as great a tool as it is, it's just sand. We need the gospel doctrine. And so for two weeks we spent working out this gospel doctrine. For two weeks we've been working on it. We're going we're gonna to emphasize it. We're going we're gonna to see it again just so it's fresh in your mind today as we read. And we have emphasized the, the, the work of God in the gospel. We have shown his work over and over and over and over through this passage. We can see him working. But remember, it's it, it, it's the work of God and the response, the obedient response of his people that makes for a healthy church. You do have a part to play. There is something for you to do. And as we establish and finish out this foundation, that's what we're going to study today. That's what we're going to focus on in light of gospel doctrine. What part do I play? Let's just begin reading. We're going to begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're looking in a bulletin, I put verse 6, but that's not going to work because we need to see it all. Verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll work all the way through verse 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, other dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Can't go any further. Just need to begin highlighting so that you see it, so as we move along that you can begin seeing over and over and over the work of God. To those who are elect, exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, both of those things, according to the foreknowledge of God, God knew what he was doing when he chose you and setting you apart from the world. He elected you. He made you exiles. He made you not belong in the world. He chose you. Sovereign work. 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, across Asia Minor, that's where that's at, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Did you hear it? Sanctification of the Spirit. Again, a part of God's person working for salvation for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Again, God working, sprinkling with us with His blood. May grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Even in these first two verses, I said it back when we were there two weeks ago, even in the just pregnant, just rich with truth and power. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who's keeping? He's keeping. He's keeping. He's making sure you get it. He's borning you again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is His work. Who by God's power, listen, this is you, who by God's power, who's keeping you? He's keeping you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He is keeping you safe. He didn't just save you. He's keeping you safe. In this you rejoice. When I'm reading these things, believer, your heart should just be... Oh, in this you rejoice. I brought this out in the first sermon. Matt didn't have any idea how I was going to work through this. I mean, he kind of knew what passage we were working from, but you remember the words of that song we sang. Scars and struggles along the way. But with joy, my heart will say. But with joy, my heart will say, I have never walked alone. In this you rejoice. In this gospel doctrine that's already been presented, you rejoice. Though, now for a little while. Let me find my place. I don't want to do it from memory. I'll mess it up. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I'm rejoicing, but I'm grieved. I'm rejoicing, but I'm grieved. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Wow! My soul has been saved! Concerning this salvation, the grace that was to be yours, or, or I'm sorry, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, when Jesus prophesied to the prophets, when Jesus spoke to the prophets about the things he was going to suffer, they're like, who are you talking about? And he's like, it's me. It was revealed to them. They, they were serving not themselves, but 
you. They weren't getting to know what they were saying because they needed to hear it, but because they, the, the, the new believers would need to hear it because you need to hear it. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that you have now been announced to you through, the, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This salvation, this gospel truth, this work of God is so amazing, it's so precious, it's so, so beautiful that even the angels who live in constant contact with the Father are bending to peer in. When's the last time you felt that way about your soul being saved? They are excited. They're, they're curious. They're looking in. And I, 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 think, I, I think it's evident. I think it's there. I think you can see it. God is at work to save people, to bring a people unto Himself. Verses 1 and 2. Let's just hit the highlights again. God the Father elects according to His foreknowledge. He makes us exiles. God the Spirit sanctifies. Jesus dies and by His blood our sins are covered. Jesus rules. Do you see it? We obey because He has authority. We are called to obedience. Our sins are cleansed by His blood and He has authority to rule over us. He has authority to say what we should and shouldn't do. God, in verse 3 through 5, God causes us to be born again. It's His work that give you, gives you life. God gives us an inheritance. This speaks to your adoption. You are no longer just a citizen of a kingdom. You are a child of the King. He has called you son and daughter. He has given you the full blessing of the kingdom. And He has said, it is yours. He's given you an inheritance to look forward to. This is His work. It's His inheritance to give. It's His work. Jesus raises us from the dead. And that's how we're born again. You didn't have any part to do with that. Just the same as your own birth. You were just a, a passive participant. The same thing. Jesus raised it from the dead. God brings us life through it. God guards us, it says. He guards us by His power. That means He protects you. That means He ensures you get to where you're supposed to go. That means he, He's keeping the harm that this world could bring from you. Oh, wait a minute. But I still suffer, but He's keeping it from being worse than what it is. There is nothing getting to you that's not first having to pass through Him. You see, we talk about this salvation. We talk about this salvation as if it's some, some present thing. And, and it is. But it's only a present reality because it's a future certainty. He is guarding you for it. He is protecting you for it. It's His power that ensures you will be safe when Jesus comes back. And that's why today you can say, I'm safe. Because He has already been doing that work. Because He is ensuring the day of, your, of His return. He is ensuring that when He comes back that He's going to get you. He is not going to accidentally overlook one that belongs to Him. This is the gospel doctrine that we're standing on. This is the gospel doctrine that we've been building out. But He goes on and we'll just keep pushing through. Let's, let's skip down to verses 10 through 12. Christ taught the prophets to prophesy about His own sufferings. Jesus said, hey, Isaiah, tell him I'm going to suffer. Isaiah 53. Hey, Isaiah, tell him I'm going to rise again. The end of Isaiah 53. It's there. Hey, Isaiah, tell him I'm going to be born of a virgin. Who even thinks of that? 
mean, it's not like Isaiah came up with that himself. I mean, who in their right mind says a virgin is going to give birth? That's not how it happens. I mean, I'm just saying. Right? You don't have to be uncomfortable. It really doesn't happen that way. You can, it's, a, it's a shocking idea. A virgin gave birth. And it was prophesied. It was told to be, it was, it was said that it was going to happen. You see, Jesus spoke of these things to the prophets. And, and, and the Holy Spirit empowers the preaching of the gospel that we might hear it. How are you sitting here? How are you believing today? Did you come to this knowledge by yourself? Did you figure it out? Did you come to this, to this idea? Oh, man, I, I'm a sinner, and, and, and I sure wish God would make a way. I think he did. I think, you know, I, I'm going to write a plan for God to follow so that he can come and save me. Is that how you came to know him? No, if you know him, it's because someone told you about him. Someone introduced you to him. You are receiving the benefits of the power of the Holy Spirit working through someone else to preach the gospel to you. This is his work. This is what he does. It's the sovereign gospel doctrine of God. It is his teaching. And he's making sure people are hearing it. Such an amazing truth that even the angels are looking at. It's amazing. It is amazing. You know why it's amazing? Because salvation is not about our serving our way into God's good graces, but by God's good grace, He has served us. God served you. Creator, most powerful being in all the universe, in need of nothing, made Himself a servant to you that you might have life. That's the gospel doctrine. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's the, the breadth and work of God that he has shown time after time after time. Whether you're reading from Peter or Paul or Ezekiel or Isaiah, you are going to be brought face to face. This is the gospel doctrine of God. You may not express it with the same ideas and the same terminology but it is there over and over and over through the Scripture. But a discerning listener might say, but you skipped verses 6 through 9. Yes, I did. Not because they're not part of the gospel doctrine, but because they're the focus. God's sovereign work and our faithful response. So you go back to verses 6 through 9, and we see, how we're supposed to respond to this great God who did all this work on our behalf. And he says, in this you rejoice, you love him, you, you suffer for his name. You know, the, the grievous trials, the various trials, certainly there's all kinds of trials. But in this context, it seems to me, it seems to those who I, I read from and study from, it seems that he is especially emphasizing suffering as a result of what you believe. Suffering in direct consequence for being a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Now, there was all kinds of suffering. These people live across a wide area. All of Asia Minor, they, they were scattered. They were exiles across Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and they, uh, Asia, and they, they, they were all over. Now, we know how, how horribly Christians suffered in Rome. 
We know the drastic and, and physical persecution they were under in Rome, but, but it's believed, it's thought at least, that that didn't spread out to all of this area so that there were some people who were there just suffering as a result of social pressure. Just simply because people didn't like their thoughts and didn't like their words. It's thought that because they were believers, they weren't necessarily accepted, that family members didn't have anything to do with them, that businesses were affected. But, but, but in this, we've got to be careful. So, so, so you, you tell me if I can just be joyous, if I can just suffer, if I can just love Jesus, then, then I'll be a healthy Christian. Not exactly. See, because that leaves a major component out. Major piece of the puzzle. Because while those are things that are expressed in this passage, they are not the thing that causes the expression of them. It's not like these people just figured it out and decided, I'm going to be joyous today. They're going to come beat me up. I'm going to be joyous anyway. All of these, all of these, these are expressions of Christian health because these people believed. Because they had faith. Faith in the Son of God. His name is Jesus. So they were joyous. They were suffering. And they were loving Jesus as an expression of their faith. The foundation of a Christian's health is not what they are doing, but in whom they are believing. It's not what you work up. It's not what you figure out. It's not what you come to on your own or can do in your own power. Those works are shifting sand. They will allow you to topple. But the one in whom you believe, that is powerful. In fact, Peter shows this over and over. He says he, he's referring to faith from the very beginning of his letter. But, but let's just pay specific attention to 6 through 9. He says, in this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and then he takes it aside, more precious than gold. Have you thought about your faith in this way? I mean, I, I confess this in the first service. I'll go ahead and confess it in the second service. I don't often run around thinking about my faith more precious than gold. I mean, just to be real. I mean, I put an awful lot of trust in physical wealth. And I have a lot of desires for things to fill my life with. Peter says that your faith is more precious than gold. He says, he says that in verse 8, though you don't see him, you believe in him. You believe him. You trust him. The outcome of your faith, not your joy, not your suffering, not your love, the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. You do have something to do. Believe Jesus. That's your work. That's your part of the gospel doctrine. That's how you respond. You believe. 
In the world all around us, there are, are shadows of love and, and joy. There are people talking about love all the time, about doing things because they love other people. There's all kinds of people saying they're happy. There's all kinds of people that suffer. I don't think you have to convince anyone that suffering is a reality in this world. That's not even an argument, right? I mean, everybody knows that's a reality. But for the Christian, these take on a whole new look. They have a vibrancy, a depth to them because before we didn't believe, but now we do believe. These are expressions of our faith. Faith in Jesus, though. This is important. It's difficult, but important. Because faith in Jesus is the one human expression that removes dependence on self from the equation. This is your one thing to do. Quit Believing in yourself. Quit trusting in the the works that you can muster up. Quit trusting in how people approve of you. Quit trusting in the comforts of this world. Quit trusting and believing that if you just control enough of the situation, that you're going to be okay. Quit believing in yourself. Trust Jesus. Faith, it's it's the one human expression. It's the only one that in entirely, faith in Jesus removes our hope in ourselves. We cannot, at the same time, believe in Jesus and at the same time, believe in self. We cannot, at the same time, believe in Jesus and at the same time, believe in money. We cannot, at the same time, believe in our position, believe in Jesus and at the same time, Believe in our position in culture and in our standing in society. Certainly, you can try. But one of those will suffer, always. You will always believe in one more than the other. And your actions will demonstrate to you which one you trust most. So, then how do you know if you believe in Jesus? See, that's the key, right? I mean, because I don't think I've said anything to this point. I don't think I've said anything that would surprise anybody. I mean, Captain Obvious, believe in Jesus and you're, and you're saved. We've been hearing that since we were little kids. The foundation of a Christian's health is not what they are doing, but in whom they are believing, but to know what we believe, we must look at what we do. Everyone believes something. There's, not, there's no such thing as a person who's not a believer. What you believe in leads your action. Everything we think, everything we do, everything we say, everything we don't do, all of it is driven by our beliefs. We're called to believe in Jesus. He has done the work. Now believe Him. So how can you know? How do you know? Three questions I developed right out of the text, verses 6 through 9, I think, I think is obvious. I think it speaks to this. I think it will be helpful for you. Are you able to rejoice even in the midst of grief? Look, I'm not talking about the grin and bear it kind of joy. I'm not, I'm not talking about the fake joy where you're jumping up and down, bouncing around and hopscotching your way through life and, and everything's great and, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. When inside you're really falling apart. That's, that's not the kind... Talk, I'm, talk, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. In this you rejoice. 
And, and, and it's not like just a little bit of joy, right? I mean, it's not like just a little bit. He goes on to say that this is an abundant joy, so much joy that it's bubbling up out of you, and, and, and you can't contain it, and it's just flowing out of you, and, and it affects people around you that they can see it and they can know it. It's this, it's this satisfaction and certainty in life that, that regardless of the difficulty of the circumstances that you are safe, can you look at the doctrine of the gospel? Can you look at the saving power of God and be joyful? In, in, in the midst of your circumstance, and I know, I have no doubt, that everyone in this room can pinpoint a time in their life where they have suffered. Can you look at that and can you look at the gospel and say, I am safe. I have all I need in Jesus. These, these people, these people Peter was writing to, this, this early church, this scattered and suffering church, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while you suffer, you are grieved. They were dealing with all kinds of problems. We believe mostly associated to their belief in Christ, but they were, they were dealing with all kinds of problems. But in this, at the very same time you are grieved, you rejoice. You believe in Him and are filled with a joy that is overflowing, that is abundant. It's more than... More than enough to satisfy. Are you able to rejoice in the midst of grief? I, I want to say this cautiously. I want to say it carefully because I, I, I don't mean to condemn you. But if you can't find this joy every day that you're alive, then in some way you are not believing in Jesus. And you are not trusting the gospel. I'm not saying you don't believe it. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that you're lost. I'm saying that you're not believing it as much as the gospel. You're, you're, you're believing something else more. You have been controlled by your circumstances rather than being shored up by the gospel. Can you re rejoice even as the world around you falls apart? Can you see the good that comes from your trials and, and I don't mean the, the what doesn't what, what what doesn't uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of good. I, I'm not talking about the no pain no gain. Let's get to the gym and work out and pump some weights, you know. And I won't be able to walk for a week, but I got gains, man. I got gains. I don't even want to face the stairs. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. No pain, no gain. That's not what I'm talking about, though. That's not what I mean. That's not what Peter was referring to when he came to them. He said, you've got these trials and they are grieving you. But they are refining you. It's like the fire. You, you put the gold in. and, and I, Have you ever seen gold that just comes right out of the ground? It's not as pretty as it is sitting on the fingers. Wrapped around our necks. It's a little shiny. But it, it doesn't look like much. You ever seen that, 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 that show? It's on, I don't remember what show it is. They're in Alaska, Digging Gold. I don't know, there's probably two or three of them by now. Digging Gold. You ever see the gold they get out of the ground? It doesn't look anything. That's not spectacular. Right? It's just yellow rocks, really. And they're usually pretty small. But boy, don't we put so much 
precious. They're so precious to us. An ounce is worth hundreds of dollars. It's like, why are you crazy? All that effort to just get a little bit. When you refine it, when you put it in the fire and, and the impurities float to the top and they're skimmed off and you bring it out and, and pour it and, and then begin to shape it and mold it, it becomes so precious, so pure, so important to us, so important people are willing to kill for it. That's what he's doing in you. Are you able to look up and, and, and knowing about the gospel doctrine and finding your joy, are you able to look up and see the end of the road? I am being made stronger. My faith is more certain. I believe more today than I did ten years ago. And there was a time when, I, when, when my faith was so small, I, I, I faced suffering and I was like, screw you, God. I don't want you, God. Leave me alone, God. And I ran. I did everything I could to pr- prove to everyone else and myself that I was my own. I'm thankful that God didn't let me go. I'm thankful that by His power, He guarded me. And when He brought me through the other side, my faith, I'm not there yet, don't hear me saying it, but my faith was made strong. Can you see the good that comes from this? See, I think when we believe the gospel, we'll quit living in fear. And we'll face the trials and know, as I live in faith, as I desire a godly life, this is Paul, 1 Timothy, as I desire a godly life, I will face persecution and I will not cower. And that last part's mine. I will face persecution, but God has made my faith strong that I won't cower in the face of it saw a perfect example this week as, as we, we put on this secret church uh, simulcast here. We didn't have any problems here, but, but the, the people where they host the simulcast at, at uh, Brook Hills Church in, in Alabama. I don't even know where it's at in Alabama. Anybody? Maybe Brook Hills. I don't, I don't know. Birmingham, Alabama. There you, thank, thank you very much. So, so Birmingham, Alabama, they're there. They, they are threatened. If you put this event on, we're going to come and do violence. I don't even know what the violence was. They just were threatened. I'm not even certain that they were ever told. So many of us. Oh, well, we're going to stop. I'm thankful that they didn't stop. They moved to an undisclosed location. They sent all the people who had tickets that were supposed to be there that night. They said, hey, check your emails. This is how you're going to be able to participate. We're going to continue forward. They stood by their conviction. And they presented the event anyway. I'm thankful that they didn't balk in fear. I'm thankful that that they looked and said, you know what, we know we're going to suffer. Across the world, that's tiny. I mean, that's really tiny, and I get that. I understand that. Most of you don't live in a place where you're having to worry about getting shot, though. Right? Beheaded. We were seeing it. People are lined up on a beach and beheaded for their faith. Lined up on a beach and shot in the back of the head. As if they'd done some great evil to people, but simply they called out their belief in Jesus. And they wouldn't deny it. And then they wouldn't pay a tax for it. We are going to die. You see, most of us don't deal with that. Most of us deal with threats and, and social pressure. 
Most of us deal with problems that, that are put upon us by, by fears that are, that, are, that are oftentimes just our own fears. I mean, why don't we share our faith? Why don't we go out proclaiming the gospel at every turn? Jesus died for sinners. Because we're afraid to call people sinners. Because we know they're not going to like that. Well, I don't have all the answers. No. You got enough. If you're a believer, you got enough. You, you know enough to believe and have salvation. You got enough to tell somebody about it. That's pretty easy. It, just this week, a couple in Oregon, I think it was Oregon, I don't remember where is that now actually, a lady and a man who owned a bakery stood by their convictions. Whether you agree with their convictions or not, that's to me immaterial at this moment. They stood by their convictions. As believers in Jesus, they were trying to live out their faith. They were simply trying to live under the conviction that they have. As believers, they were bringing their faith into the marketplace. As believers, their faith was determining what they would and wouldn't do, what they wouldn't and would, would and wouldn't engage in. And whether you would agree with them or not, the fact is they were living their convictions. And when a mother and her daughter came in and said, hey, we'd like to get a wedding cake, and they said, well, who's the new, what's the name of the groom and the bride? And they said, oh, it's going to be two brides. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't, we, we, we won't do a same-sex wedding. They have now been sued. And the state, I think it's Oregon, I could be wrong, you can go fact check me. But the state, wherever they're at, has determined that they owe $135,000 for pain and suffering. $135,000. Because they simply wouldn't make a cake. Now, more than likely, just having seen a lot of this stuff happening and we're seeing the Christian community stand up and send money, I, I'm, I'm guessing more than likely they will have a fund started and somebody will raise those funds and it'll probably get paid and it'll be all right. God's going to provide. But here's the reality. Again, whether you agree with them or not, whether that's what you would have done or not, they are brothers and sisters in Christ who are simply trying to live their convictions. And if you say they're wrong, then you're standing in the same illogical position as, as someone else who says they don't have a right to do that. That, that, that. Neither case really stands up because as soon as you start saying, I got a right to say this and you don't have a right to say that, well, you don't have a right to say that, then all of a sudden you're in this circular argument that doesn't win. They simply were trying to live out their faith and now they are being persecuted for it. They've, had, they've lost their business. Let me tell you, let me ask you, what if that was your friend's? It's not going to happen in Missouri, at least anytime soon, but would it bother you if that was me? Because I'm telling you, if I was a baker, I wouldn't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Whether you agree with me or not, I wouldn't bake that cake. I feel bad for the couple that suffers because they feel harmed. I feel bad for the homosexual couple. But I feel bad for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are trying to live out their faith. The reality is, we face that all over. If we are going to live a godly life, we will be persecuted. That's Paul, 1 Timothy 3, 22-ish. See, the reality is, I think, if we are believing in Jesus, at some point we will come into a stark contrast with the culture around us. Maybe that is an indication Either Paul's wrong 
And I've never suffered from my faith that either Paul's wrong or maybe I'm not living a godly life. Can you see the good that comes from these trials? If you believe in Jesus, they will be used for your good. And if you can believe in Jesus, then, then, then not only will they be good for you, but you will be able to face them. And as you face them, you will be able to rejoice. And then finally, just quickly, do you love Jesus? We talk about it. We talk about loving all kinds of things. We talk about, I love this, I love that. You know, I mean, uh, we, love, we, we love our favorite team. We, 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 we love uh, people just left and right. I love, 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 love. I don't want to deny those loves. I mean, I, they're real. Augustine observed that all of our sin was out of a, a love that was out of priority that we certainly love. But we love a lot of things too much. Do you love Jesus? You see, I think the reason the reason we struggle in so many ways is because we love so many other things more than Him. But as we learn to believe, as we learn to trust, even a growing faith, He should be making it up the ranks, right? I mean, what did He do for you? He humbled Himself. He put on flesh. He took on a whole new nature. He served you. He died for you. So that you could know life. He did this work for you. As you believe, then, then certainly He's moving up in the ranks. Certainly as you learn to believe that and trust Him more fully, you'll begin to love, love other things less and, and love Him more. Well, how do I know I love Jesus? Well, Do you prioritize Him? Is He a priority in your life? Is He a priority? Is He a part of your day-to-day -day routines? Is he, is he the person you think of when things are going well? Is he the person you think of when things are going bad? What leads you to worship him? I asked this question in our community group this week. What causes you to say praise Jesus? How do you prioritize him in your life? Do you obey him? These were his words. He equated obedience to, his, to love. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. The things I've said, you will walk in obedience. You will live. In accordance with them. They will be important to you. Do you love Him so much that you'll suffer in this world because you just don't want to denounce Him? Do you love Him so much that you'd rather offend the world than offend your Savior? Because in so many ways, that's really the only choice we have. All these questions, they help us understand what it is to believe and what, what it looks like to trust. But, but let me assure you, as you sit there and you measure this out in your own life and you think, am I really able to rejoice? Am I really suffering? Am, am I loving Jesus? As you're working that out in your life, I want you to recognize this. I don't, want, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, I've got I to gotta, I gotta get more joy, I've got to get more love, I've got to get more, more suffering. Probably not going to do that. No, you've got to get more belief. You've got to get to know Jesus. You've got to look at His doctrine, and you've got you to begin to trust it. You've got to set yourself apart and set yourself aside from it and look and trust Him. He's done it. He's done it. He's made it possible. This joy, this love, 
and even the cost that comes in following him will be the natural expression of this growing faith. Your faith is strong, not because you hold it or not because it's growing. It's strong when you place it in Jesus. The strength of our faith is determined by the thing we place it in. Trust in him. He has saved you. He will keep you safe. He will guard you. He will protect you. He's given you new life. He's chosen you by His foreknowledge. He has sanctified you in the Spirit. He's even ensured that prophets would come and proclaim this truth to you. Now all you have to do is this one thing. Believe Him. And watch that begin to express it in your life. Watch it begin to flow out of you as you become distinct from the world, as he polishes you, as he refines you, and Jesus begins to reflect out of you. Let's pray.